I um, was going to say that Marjorie Reeves um, became a medieval scholar of international renown, as Tim has already said, and her reputation was founded on her work on the 12th century visionary mystic Joachim of Fury. As far as I know, Florence Nightingale, who studied and edited the works of various medieval mystics and aspired to the mystical state herself, never investigated Joachim, but I'm sure she would have been fascinated by Marjorie Reeves' research had she known about it. Um, I think I, I possibly met Marjorie Reeves, but I, I was too young um, to have been taught by her. But I would like to pay tribute to some of the outstanding people who did teach me at St. Anne's, um, uh, Jill Lewis in particular, um, and Jennifer Hart. Um, and in a more pastoral role, um, I also owed a lot to, to Margaret Howitson, who was the Classics Fellow here for a number of years. Um, it's exactly two years today since my book on Florence Nightingale was published, and I've been going, seem to have been going around the country ever since talking about her. Um, but it's appropriate, I suppose, that I should give my very final talk on her um, here, as I think it was at St Anne's, um, while sitting in one of the Bevington Road gardens in the summer of 1982, that I first thought of writing about Florence Nightingale. Um, I was recovering from a bad bout of finals, um, <laughs> and it, it seems um, a curious way to relax, but I remember opening that week's Times Literary Supplement and finding a lead review of a fascinating book which claimed to demythologize Florence Nightingale. The book by an Australian historian called F.B. Smith has since been exposed as a piece of shoddy workmanship very, very widely across the world, but I think it sort of whetted my appetite. And it was Jennifer Hart who, in one of my final conversations with her before her death, asked me in that sort of provocative devil's advocate way of hers, why write another biography of Florence Nightingale? So this, in a sense, is, a, is an answer to her question. Um, I, I'm just going to start with this photograph of Florence Nightingale because, it, again, it has a sort of personal significance for me because it turned up in the summer of 2006. Um, photographs of Florence Nightingale are very rare because she hated having her photograph taken. And this one sort of um, emerged during a house sale and it was taken by... Um, William Slater, who was the chemist's assistant um, at Romsey, the, the um, town near the Nightingale's um, home in Hampshire. And it shows Florence Nightingale at the age of 38 in May 1858 on one of her rare visits home. Um, and although, obviously, at that, that stage of photography, the subject had to sit very still, um, there's something very compelling about the sort of drive and intense concentration um, that I think um, is there in this picture, which very rep much represents the, the Florence Nightingale I wanted to write about. Last month, the world marked the centenary of Florence Nightingale's death. Florence Nightingale died at her home in South Street on the 13th of August, 1910. Though there was no suffering, there was increasing weariness, reported Elizabeth Bosenkay, Nightingale's companion, of her final hours, and she was latterly quite unable to give her attention to conversation. She dozed a good deal, and during Friday night, the watchful nurse noticed a very slight change in her breathing while asleep. This semi-comatose condition continued, continued till she quietly passed away at 2pm, and we sent for the relations. Nightingale's funeral was held a week later at St Margaret's East Wellow, the 13th century church close to the family's Hampshire home at Embley Park. Her relatives, and in particular one of her executors, Louis Shaw Nightingale, were scrupulous in observing Florence Nightingale's wish that she should not be given a public funeral of any kind. In Cassandra, Nightingale's essay from the early 1850s, in which she describes the frustration of women of her class who can find no opening for a life of action, Florence Nightingale had concluded with the following passage. Let neither name nor date be placed on her grave, still less the expression of regret or of admiration, but simply the words, I believe in God. Florence Nightingale's tombstone is inscribed with her initials and her dates. But if, as was confidently expected in the press, her family were offered a state funeral for her, this offer was politely declined. There was something of a compromise. 
On the day of the funeral in Hampshire, a memorial service was held at St Paul's Cathedral, overseen by the War Office. The demand for tickets was so great that the allocation of 2,500 could have been distributed several times over. The Royal Family, Asquith the Prime Minister, members of the Cabinet and the Archbishop of Canterbury were represented in absentia. The only Cabinet figure mentioned by the Times as being present was John Burns, the working-class president of the local government board. As the historian R.E. Foster has put it, the absence of some of these official figures may be attributed to the fact that the grouse season had just begun. (laughs) Meanwhile, Florence Nightingale's coffin was transported to the small market town of Romsey and from there to the plot at St Margaret's Church. In persistent rain, the cortege of five coaches reached the church. To the slight alarm of Florence Nightingale's family, photographers and cameramen were lining the route. And at the graveside, following a short service, it became even more difficult to reconcile Nightingale's wish for privacy with the universal desire to show honour to her, for the churchyard turned out to be filled with a large crowd, mostly local people, come to pay their respects. So great was the crowd, the police had to block the porch. What we find, to a very large extent, being commemorated in the vast expanse of newsprint that accompanied Florence Nightingale's death in 1910 is her legend, The Legend of the Lady with the Lamp, promoted in scores of poems and pictures at the height of Florence mania during the Crimean War. Even where the legend isn't directly alluded to, it's still there in essence. At St Paul's, Canon Newbolt identified Florence Nightingale's transcending quality as simple goodness. And although Florence Nightingale's favourite hymn, The Son of God Goes Forth to War, was included in the service, another chosen hymn, Lead Kindly Light, must have seemed even more apposite. Almost alone among the tributes in getting closer to the real Nightingale was the article written by Dr Arthur Longhurst, who had been out to the Crimea in 1854, in the Hampshire Chronicle. He observed that perhaps the chief point in her character was her wonderful power and capacity for organisation. She even overcame official red tapism. Why write a biography of Florence Nightingale for the 21st century, especially as there were roughly 50 books about her published in the course of the 20th? That seems a pretty daunting figure, 50, until one realises that all of these books, to a greater or lesser extent, borrow freely from the first official authorised life, Sir Edward Cook's, published in 1913, and that furthermore, when I published my book in 2008, It was only the third major full-length life in just under a hundred years. I think what puts people off, what certainly should have put me off, was the the overwhelming um, material, which I amount of material um, about Nightingale, which I should talk about in in due course. Also, the fact that for long periods, some vital family papers, which are today at Claydon House, were inaccessible, and also because it it is and has been for a long time increasingly difficult to disentangle the historical Florence Nightingale from the legendary one. Florence Nightingale's reputation is in the strange position of being subject to two opposing forces, a myth and a counter-myth. The myth, of course, is of the ministering angel, the lady with the lamp, who soothed soldiers' brows on her nightly visits to the wards at Scutari, and whose efforts are are said to have dramatically reduced the soaring death rate there from disease at the beginning of 1855. In fact, it's possible to pinpoint exactly the moment when Florence Nightingale, the English woman dispatched to the Crimean War by the British government at the head of a team of nurses, was transformed from national heroine into the stuff of legend. On the 24th of February 1855, following months of intense speculation in the press about Nightingale's religious beliefs and social background, an engraving depicting her carrying a lamp on her nightly rounds among the wounded at Scutari, was published in the Illustrated London News. This image rapidly became a potent one, immortalised in scores of reproductions and countless songs and poems. Visitors to Nightingale's Hospital kept an eye out for the lamp. One of them had his hopes fulfilled when, called up accidentally at three in the morning, he found Florence about with her little lamp, ministering, as the men themselves say, like a guardian angel. The lamp instantly became part of Nightingale's personal mythology and an irresistible metaphor for the ideal of Christian womanhood Nightingale was fast coming to represent. The counter-myth 
diametrically opposed to the sentimental legend, has had almost as powerful a hold on the public imagination. It can be traced back to Lytton Strach's vivid sketch of Florence Nightingale in his epoch-defining work, Eminent Victorians, published in 1918, just as the First World War was coming to its end. The picture of Florence Nightingale in Eminent Victorians is often described as a debunking one. But if one looks more closely at the essay, it's possible to see that Strachey um, is actually torn between his admiration for Nightingale's dominating will and his desire to expose what he regards as the fundamental inhumanity of her power. And it is this dichotomy that partly makes the essay such compelling reading today. In contrast, I'd argue, um, with the accompanying essays on um, Manning, Arnold, and Gordon, which really are just strictly debunking exercises. Strachey's interpretation, though, of Nightingale as a woman who sublimated her sexual feelings in pursuit of power over men was provocative and genuinely shocking for the generations raised on the storybook myth, and the consequences for Nightingale's posthumous reputation were instantaneous. There was a sudden decline in works of popular biography about her. Her name appeared less frequently on lists of famous women. While the obligatory question, once standard on schoolgirls' examination papers, asking for an account of her life, now disappeared. Strachey's sexual innuendo, according to James Pope Hennessy, taught adolescents to snigger at Florence Nightingale's name. This innuendo became increasingly present in popular discussion of her, finding its most preposterous representation in the assumption common among most modern American nursing students that Nightingale died of syphilis. In reality, she died from old age and heart failure. The pendulum has continued to swing backwards and forwards between these reductive extremes of saint and sinner in biographies, popular and scholarly, in fiction and on stage and screen. On the one hand, we have plucky Anna Neagle in the 1951 film The Lady with the Lamp, insufferably noble as she wafts down the corridors at Scutari, pausing only to wipe the brows of the suffering wounded. At the other end of the spectrum, there is the character bearing Nightingale's name in Edward Bond's surreal 60s play, Early Morning. Bond's Florence Nightingale has a lesbian affair with Queen Victoria, who rapes her, disguises her sex by wearing a kilt and speaking in a bad Scottish accent, and nurses soldiers by providing them with sexual favours. I think Florence Nightingale in the original production was betrayed by um, Marianne Faithful. So. <laughs> Is it possible to overcome the extremes of these two interpretations and achieve not only some balance, but some badly need accuracy and a proper historical context in which to place Florence Nightingale? In a sense, the answer must be no. These myths exist, but because we want them to. And no matter how much someone goes on about inaccuracy and misrepresentation, they probably will go on being repeated till the end of time. But I'd like to consider a number of areas in which we can easily separate the historical Florence Nightingale from the mythical one. First, let's start with the lamp. You can see here in this uh, famous image, Florence Nightingale is holding a sort of genie, magical genie lamp. The real lamp was a more standard fanus of, a, of, of, of a, an Arab pattern lamp of a kind that you can still buy in the Istanbul suit today. But if you go to London's Waterloo Place off Pall Mall, you'll see the statue of Florence Nightingale by A.G. Walker, the first erected in the capital in 1915 to a woman other than royalty, um, and a miniature version of it sits today in the white drawing room at 10 Downing Street overseeing the operations of government. Um, but the nine-foot high figure in Waterloo Place carries that um, Grecian oil lamp, the, the magical one, as opposed to the folding lantern which Florence Nightingale would have used. Did Florence Nightingale attach any special importance to the kind of lighting she used at Scutari? Disappointingly, it must be said, no. There are only a couple of references to a lamp in her voluminous wartime correspondence. But for the public, the genie lamp of legend seen in the illustrated London news picture lent her an aura of magic to her nightly visitations, an aspect reflected in some of the verse emanating from Florence Mania which overlooked the work of the other nurses and attributed to their superintendent a magical quality of omniscience. Um, this is one of, I think, um, five surviving lamps which have associations with the nursing expedition uh, to Scutari. This one, I think, was brought back to England by um, the Bracebridges, who were Florence Nightingale's close friends there. Um, 
I sort of caused a, a, a sort of a mild amount of offence when my book came out by suggesting that the reason why Florence Nightingale went around the wards at Scutari late at night and banned her other nurses from doing so was not simply to, to look, um, look after the soldiers and check on their welfare, but also to check that the, ner the nurses weren't getting up into any nefarious deeds. Um, and it's true because this was a vitally important experiment, introducing women officially the first time to a theatre of war. Um, and nurses, I'm afraid, were notorious and remained notorious for most of the 19th century for drinking and also for having sex with patients and male orderlies. Um, this is just an example of the kind of picture that was produced of Florence Nightingale during Florence mania in the um, mid-1850s. Um, they're obviously not taken from life, and they often bear a close resemblance to Queen Victoria, and also they often uh, obviously wearing virginal blue if they're in colour. Um, I sort of think of Florence, the Florence Nightingale legend as having sort of relics of the cult, and the lamp is obviously the most important of these. But another one is the owl that Florence Nightingale um, became Florence Nightingale's closest companion in the years just before she went off to the Crimean War, Athena, who she rescued um, when she was visiting the Parthenon. Athena was a very bad-tempered owl that nobody else got on with, but she used to pop out and peck at visitors um, from Florence Nightingale's pocket. Um, uh, but she died just before Florence Nightingale left uh, for Scutari. Um, she was left in Mrs. Gaskell's care. Mrs. Gaskell was finishing north and south at Lee Hurst um, in Derbyshire, the, the Nightingale's home there, um, and was left in charge of, of, of um, Athena. And when her back was turned, Athena dropped dead. Um, anyway, she was stuffed, um, and Athena achieved a kind of posthumous fame, because if you had been in England um, during the Crimean War, it's quite likely you would have seen this picture in, in shops um, showing Florence Nightingale with Athena proudly sitting on a pedestal. And then the other relic of the cult, I suppose, is, is the carriage, that blasted Russian carriage, as Florence Nightingale called it, um, in which Florence Nightingale drove around the Crimea itself. She, she first made her inspections, the three visits she made to the Crimea, um, she made her inspections on horseback and, and fell, and so um, the British Army got her this carriage, which, which still survives today. I think it's back in the National um, Army Museum. And here is a blurry picture of the carriage um, during Florence Nightingale's lifetime. It was, such, it was very popular um, and was put on exhibition immediately after Florence Nightingale's death in Chesterfield in Derby. This is just a, a picture I like because it's, um, you know, the Victorians were not only obsessed with phrenology, they were obsessed with physiognomy. And this is a book published in 1860, from a book published in 1866. Um, and on the left, you can see the idealised picture of Florence Nightingale looking again very much like Queen Victoria. And the physiognomy um, expert writing the book said that she represented the epitome of, of European womanhood. And then on the right, you get an imaginary character called Bridget McBruiser, who very obviously doesn't. <laughs> what did Florence Nightingale achieve in the Crimean War? Most importantly, she ensured that the hospitals at Scutari did not fall apart in the first months after her arrival there. She wasn't primarily a nurse. Her nursing experience was limited to several months of training in Germany and France before the war. And after the first hectic weeks at Scutari, Florence Nightingale did little practical nursing, but was more concerned with larger problems of superintending her staff and attempting to set up some kind of system for patient care at the barrack and general hospitals at Scutari and later at hospitals in the Crimea itself. This is a picture of the barrack hospital, the main hospital at Scutari, which Florence Nightingale had superintendence over. Um, it is a, a vast building. You really have to see it. It's now the headquarters of the... Turkish First Army. It's possible to get in, um, uh, though you're very closely guarded while, while you go round it. But it is an absolutely enormous building. Um, as I said, Florence Nightingale did little practical nursing, and her primary role, in a sense, was to act as a purveyor, keeping the hospitals supplied with essential goods, like clothing and food, and cutting through the bureaucratic incompetence of the Army Medical Department.
However, her contribution to reducing the terrible mortality in the hospitals from disease, not battle wounds, is more difficult to assess. The death rate reached a peak of 52% in the first winter she was there. Nightingale and her 38 nurses at Scutari from the original expedition introduced new standards of hygiene and improved the soldiers' diets. But it may have been the momentous introduction of the Sanitary Commission, introduced from England by Palmerston's government, which found out that one of the hospitals was built on top of a cesspool, which introduced new standards of cleanliness and ensured that the death rate fell. And this emanated not from Florence Nightingale, but from the government at home. Alternatively, you could argue that the reason why the death rates fell so dramatically in the spring of 1855 was simply that the condition of patients being sent across the Black Sea from Crimea to Scutari had improved so much that that they weren't um, treating severely ill patients at Scutari anymore. This is um, another idealised picture of Florence Nightingale at Scutari by Benwell, published in 1856. And this is um, one of the drawings done by Florence Nightingale's sister Parthenope, who really sort of, having opposed her sister's nursing vocation um, for much of the early part of Florence Nightingale's life, then sort of became the sort of keeper of the flame and burnished the legend while Florence Nightingale was uh, um, at Scutari and in the Crimea. And uh, Parthenope received many letters from people at Scutari and in the Crimea and circulated these to family and to friends and to the Queen. And it's from the descriptions in these letters that she, she drew pictures like this. But we shouldn't get too stuck on the Crimean War anyway. This was just the beginning of Florence Nightingale's work, which for the next half century would encompass work for important reforms of army healthcare, hospital design, and even plans for sanitary reform and social change in India, as well as a school at St. Thomas's dedicated to the training of nurses. 2008 marked the 60th anniversary of the NHS in Britain, and it was surprising that more emphasis wasn't placed at that time on what may be Florence Nightingale's single most important achievement, the introduction from the 1860s of trained nurses into the workhouses, and her clear enunciation in her ABC of workhouse reform of the principle of free health care provision for those who could not afford it. The sick and incurable were to be separated from the rest of the population of the workhouse, and Nightingale envisaged a central administration for the health care of the metropolitan area of London initially, which would be supported by the levy of a general rate. This is frequently um, overlooked, uh, not only by people writing about Florence Nightingale, but by historians of the NHS, that Florence Nightingale made this important um, reform. She started doing it in the 1860s, and in the 1890s, the last decade of her active working life, she designed a programme for um, the introduction of nurses into the workhouses of Ireland. So it was a project that was very important to her. And basically what it does is it takes the care of sick um, paupers out of the charge of able-bodied paupers and into the charge of properly trained nurses. What about Mary Seacole, the Jamaican-born Creole nurse who travelled to the Crimea independently of the official expeditions? In recent years, she has become the only woman to challenge Florence Nightingale's position as the archetypal Crimean nurse. In popular history, she is the darling of the national curriculum, a black nightingale to put up against the white one. But while Seacole has been presented justifiably as a black woman whose achievements have been marginalised by white historians, the false comparisons with Florence Nightingale that continue to this day do not belong to the realm of serious history. Moreover, they fail to do justice to the significance of the Crimean work of either woman. There could be no doubt that in terms of practical nursing expertise, Seacole far outdid Nightingale's experience of hands-on nursing. While Florence was on her visit to Kaiserswerth in the summer of 1850 for her brief initial period of training, Mary Seacole was nursing victims of the Kingston cholera epidemic. Seacole's practice extended not simply to nursing, but also to the preparation of herbal and pharmaceutical medicines to diagnosis, minor surgery, and even a post-mortem. In Wonderful Adventures, the book that Seacole 
authored on her return from the Crimea in 1857, she describes carrying out her first and last post-mortem on a dead baby to learn more about the effects of cholera. Equally, though, the romantic myth surrounding Florence Nightingale's name has often obscured her formidable organising powers and the reality that her primary responsibility during the war was not to nurse, but to administer the nascent military nursing service. Furthermore, there is no evidence for the rivalry that has sometimes been posited between the two women. On the one hand, Florence clearly respected all that Seacole had done for the men at the front. In the account of his culinary campaign in the Crimea, Alexis Sawyer quotes Florence as saying that she would like to see Mrs. Seacole before she returned to England, as I hear she has done a good de great deal of good for the Pole soldiers. And while researching my book, I discovered evidence which reveals that Florence Nightingale implicitly acknowledged this good work by contributing to Mary Seacole's testimonial fund raised by well-wishers when Seacole faced bankruptcy in 1857. But on the other hand, Florence Nightingale remained wary of the reputation of the Seacole Hotel on Spring Hill for being a bad house and was anxious that the good name of her own nursing establishment should not suffer by any association with it. She knew that Seacole encouraged drinking among her guests, turned a blind eye to immorality and possibly even had an illegitimate teenage daughter of her own. Her prejudice against this woman of bad character, as she later called her, wasn't racially motivated. A more plausible reason for any resentment she felt was that, that at some stage during her time at Balaclava, Seacole won the protection of Florence's great adversary, Dr John Hall, Inspector General of Hospitals in the Crimea, and received his sanction to prescribe her own medicines. Seacole's nursing of and hobnobbing with high-ranking officers would not have found favour with Nightingale either. Nightingale's nursing concentrated on the ordinary ranks. Officers had servants to nurse them or could pay for their nursing. Nightingale considered it no part of the main business of her work to attend to their needs. This is a portrait of, of Mary Seacole that came to light recently um, in a car boot sale. Um, this document, um, any of you who haven't been to the New Florence Nightingale Museum in London, I, I'd strongly urge you to go. It's, it's an extraordinary modern museum full of lights and sounds. But this is probably um, the most important document that the Nightingale Museum owns, which has now been digitised. Um, it's a list of the 229 women who went out officially um, to Scutari and to the Crimea during the Crimean War. And at the top, you'll see Florence Nightingale's name. Um, the penultimate name is somebody called Emma Fagg, who was dismissed for incompetence, but then had the sort of small historical distinction of being the last member of Florence Nightingale's um, original expedition, expedition of the autumn of 1854 to survive. She died in Thanet Workhouse in, in 1913. There's been an extraordinary um, shift in the historiography of, of Crimean War nursing in the last 20 years, so that we no longer look at it simply through the prism of Florence Nightingale's experience. There were many expeditions in which Florence Nightingale wasn't involved, and the vast majority of the nurses who were sent out east, either officially or unofficially under their own steam, like Mary Seacole, didn't come under Nightingale's jurisdiction at all, and therefore were not subject to her system of nursing. One our understanding of an important aspect of Nightingale's life which has had to be radically revised is of the illness which overtook her in her late thirties and which kept her bedridden for many years. For decades, many commentators questioned whether she was suffering from an organic illness at all, arguing instead that her symptoms were the product of neuroses. One historian went so far as to argue that Nightingale feigned illness and lied about her health in order to protect herself from people she didn't want to see, particularly her mother and sister. However, in 1995, David Young, a former principal scientist at the Wellcome Institute, put forward a compelling argument for Nightingale as a sufferer from chronic brucellosis, which he probably caught from drinking goat's milk in the Crimea. At once, Nightingale's symptoms, insomnia, palpitations, and severe spinal pain, spondylitis, which is one of the byproducts of really serious Brucellosis, which meant that Florence Nightingale um, had to spend most of her time working in bed and had to, and had to be carried across the room, um, fell into place as indicators of severe disease. 
Of course, Nightingale was able to use her illness strategically at times. The fact that on a number of occasions it was confidently expected that she would die gave her work a great urgency and allowed her to live in the seclusion necessary for the achievement of her Herculean tasks. Yet she worked relentlessly on, affected by another byproduct of brucellosis, serious depression and irritability. She was often cold and dry, some might say cross, wrote the aunt who cared for her, though this aunt remained surprised that in the circumstances there was not more revulsion and irritation. This is one of the drawings of Florence Nightingale, uh, which I found in a cardboard box at Claydon. Lots and lots of pictures of her that, that had never been seen before, um, which shows her um, shortly after her return from the war in August 1856. Her hair had been, her hair, hair had been cut and then her head had been shaved uh, during her illness in May 1855 when she was in the Crimea, when she, she first suffered serious illness, um, which was thought to be Crimean fever. This picture is very interesting because it's so little known. Um, it's by G.F. Watts, and it was intended to be part of his um, exhibition of paintings of eminent Victorians. As I said, Florence Nightingale didn't like to have her, her portrait painted or her photograph taken. Uh, most photographs that exist were, were, only done, uh, were only taken at Queen Victoria's insistence. But she did give Watts two sittings um, in the mid-1860s, when she would have been in her mid-40s, um, and I think he gave up because she would give him no more than two, and she only gave two on, on, under her sister's, because um, her sister put pressure on her to allow him to, to paint her. But I think this is a, a very disturbing picture because I, obviously she's put on a lot of weight because she, she can't get any exercise. Um, but I don't think it's imagination to see a, a look of, of pain in her face. And obviously um, her features are very swollen, which was um, said to be um, one byproduct of, of her disease. And here's a much more familiar picture from the end of Florence Nightingale's life, very benign. And here's a, an interesting photograph. One, of, one um, copy of this came up for sale recently and, and, and um, achieved an enormous sum. Um, on the wall behind Florence Nightingale, you can see the, the picture by Albert Chalon of, of Fanny Nightingale, Florence Nightingale, with her her two daughters from the 1820s. Um, this picture has been said to be dated from 1906, but it seems to me much more likely it was taken after 1907, when Florence Nightingale became the first woman to receive the Order of Merit. Um, the thing that everybody noticed about Florence Nightingale's rooms in her house at South Street in Mayfair was the amount of natural light um, uh, that, that was let into them and the, the lack of, of sort of fussy furniture. So, so different from Victorian and Edwardian fashions. And of course, strong supplies of natural light and fresh air were a feature of, of Nightingale's system of nursing. These are some of the myths that any modern biographer of Florence Nightingale has to do his or her best to counter. But what about the documentary material, the great mass of paper on which the biographer has to base his conclusions? Here one struggles, figuratively speaking, to keep one's head above water, to avoid being drowned by the millions of Nightingale's words that survive in over 200 archives around the world. One also comes up against one of the central paradoxes of Florence Nightingale's life, that while she often said that she did not wish to be remembered after I am gone, she could not bring herself to effect the mass destruction of her papers and of the thousands of letters that she had written and received throughout her lifetime. In part, her desire for self-obliteration was formed by her realisation, born out of that extraordinary burst of fame she had experienced as the heroine of the Crimean War, that publicity while she was alive could only be detrimental to the multiple projects of public health reform she was working on. So she never made a public speech or appearance, but worked consistently behind the scenes through male politicians and advisers. Yet she also experienced an ongoing, lifelong struggle between that desire to be forgotten and the surrendering of her indomitable will to God and the survival of what she called her own small reputation. This struggle is evident in the mass survival of her papers. Destroy, return, burn are words which appear regularly scrawled across the upper left-hand corner of her letters. In 1860, she begged Henry, later Cardinal Manning, to burn her letters to him, adding, 
that I have alas met with such treachery in my poor life that any carelessness on the part of those I know to be friendly to me might easily be turned to bad account. Manning, like many of Nightingale's correspondents, ignored her request, but then she hardly assisted in the process of destruction. Drafts of letters and drafts of drafts and drafts of drafts of drafts exist among her papers, and although a clause in her will of 1896, when she was in her mid-70s, instructed her executors to burn home all her manuscripts, with the exception of those relating to her work for India, five years later she had changed her mind. She still believed that the majority of her papers should be destroyed, but she was bequeathing them to Henry Bonham Carter, her cousin, and the secretary of the Nightingale Training School at St Thomas's, leaving him with the difficult decision of what to preserve. Evidently, he couldn't bring himself to sanction their wholesale destruction either, and so today a modern biographer is faced in the British Library's collection with volume after volume of Nightingale papers, bound in green leather, each with gold-tooled lettering on the spine, the second largest among personal archives after that of Gladstone. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. At a conservative estimate, and it is really a very conservative one, some 14,000 letters from Nightingale are known to exist in 200 archives throughout the world. And on several occasions in the last five years when I've given talks about Nightingale, people have come up to me afterwards and with a light in their eyes declare that they or their family or some close friend have items of unknown correspondence from Florence Nightingale. And they always look so disappointed when I don't look more enthusiastic about it. Then there are one's predecessors as biographers of Nightingale. Mine, as I said, is only the third full-length biography in just under 100 years. The 50 or so biographies, long or short, of Florence Nightingale that appear throughout the 20th century all emanated from Edward Cook's biography, which still um, is the best um, account of Florence Nightingale's pub public work, which appeared in 1913. The second biography of Florence Nightingale, which only went up to... Um, her life um, to the end of the Crimean War was published in 1929 by a woman called Ida O'Malley who had been a um, research assistant to Ray Strachey when Ray Strachey wrote her book The Cause, The History of the, the Women's Movement. Um, Ray Strachey's The Cause had as its appendix the first publication of Florence Nightingale's famous essay about what it was like to be a Victorian middle-class woman, Cassandra, and the effect of Cassandra on Florence Nightingale's um, reputation was very great because f here was a sort of feminist-friendly um, Florence Nightingale um, for women who had, just received, uh, who had just achieved equal parity with men by um, the voting uh, reforms of 1930. And so it was decided that there should be another biography. So Idro mainly wrote this one volume. And then, in 1950... Um, came Cecil Woodham Smith's famous best-selling biography, which, um, whatever its faults of documentation and interpretation, remains a great piece of narrative storytelling and has retained its position as the most enjoyable and dramatically vivid exposition of Nightingale's long life. In 1950, the publication of Woodham Smith's biography after ten years' hard slog was something of an event, marked by the display in the window of Harrods in Knightsbridge of that carriage in which Nightingale had been driven around the Crimea, known to generations of St. Thomas's nursing students as Florrie's Lorry. <laughs> Woodham Smith didn't have the kind of apparatus available to the modern biographer. No microfilm, no proper catalogue or printed editions, not even much use of the photocopier, though she did have the social cachet to organise exclusive use of the British Library's collection in Wales during the war years, and she was chauffeur-driven to libraries for her research. The different Florence Nightingales that these writers present must unavoidably be an important factor in any 21st century Nightingale biography. They remain part of a continuing biographical debate, presenting documentary evidence that may no longer be extant, as in the case of O'Malley's extensive quotations from Florence's girlhood diaries which subsequently disappeared, or tapping into oral traditions, some of which are highly misleading, which by definition we no longer have access to, or perhaps most significantly, reminding posterity of the extent to which Nightingale was revered as a national icon by the generations whose lives had been directly affected by the widespread reforms she brought about. So, for instance, Cecil Woodham Smith, I think part of the reason why Cecil Woodham Smith venerated Florence Nightingale to such a great extent is that Woodham Smith's father, um, Captain James Fitzgerald, had been in the British Army in India 
And so Cecil Woodham Smith knew at first hand all about the reforms um, that Florence Nightingale had brought in to save the lives of, of British soldiers in India through her work on the uh, Royal Commission on the Health of the Army in India in the late 1850s, early 1860s. Writing about a great national icon like Florence Nightingale, one realises the extent to which certain stories have become deeply ingrained through many subsequent retellings. When one starts to look at them closely, they can sometimes disappear altogether. For example, Nightingale is so often described at the age of 16 as having been spoken to by God and called to his service in terms that suggest some kind of hallucinatory experience like Joan of Arc and her voices. Yet it's clear that Nightingale was deeply suspicious of this kind of out-of-body experience or of the states of religious ecstasy and rapture experienced by the great mystics like Teresa of Avila. Nightingale's use of the word voice scattered through her writings is as a metaphor for what she also described as deep inner impressions. And what about her family? The story of the drama of Florence Nightingale's early years of a possessive sister and anxious parents placing obstacles in her path to prevent her from following her ambition to train as a nurse has been retold scores of times. Access to the extensive family papers at Claydon allowed me to replace this with a version of events that gives proportionate weight to the perspective of the Nightingales themselves instead of relying entirely on the highly coloured depiction one gets from Florence Nightingale's own letters. Previous writers went too far down the path of a tyrannical Nightingale family constantly obstructing the younger daughter of the household. And when we do this, what we end up with is a caricature of the family that does justice to none of its members. As an example of this tendency to caricature a familiar story that's been retold many times, I'd single out a book published in 2004 by Gillian Gill entitled Nightingale's Florence and Her Family, which opens on a dramatic scene in the autumn of 1849. Fanny Nightingale, Florence's mother, is screaming at her daughter like a cockney fishwife for having rejected Richard Monkton Milnes's umpteenth proposal of marriage. Never mind that the evidence suggests something to the contrary. According to Florence herself in her Lebenslauf, her curriculum vitae written when she entered the deaconess institution at Kaiserswert, her mother had never attempted to influence Florence in Milnes's direction, whatever the disappointment that Mrs Nightingale must have felt at her daughter's failure to make this brilliant match. Reading scores of family letters at Claydon House, where Parthenope Nightingale preserved an extraordinary archive of material after her marriage in 1858 to Sir Harry Verney, I was struck time and again by the amount of effort that the Nightingales put into trying to understand their unconventional daughter and her ambition. And one letter in particular stood out, as a very moving attempt by Fanny Nightingale to move closer to her daughter's point of view. It was written during Florence's second stay at Kaiserswert. Fanny hoped that this time will have been a real happiness for you and a rest to your spirit, and that there are happier things in store for you at home, even though our opinions may differ with yours as to what the right way always is, as well as the way of doing it. Yes, my dear, take faith and love with you, even though it be to walk in a path which leads you strangely from us all. And so on in a similar vein. This letter, I think, overturns the one-dimensional caricature of Fanny Nightingale, portrayed by generations of writers as an uncaring parent, motivated solely by fears about what the outside world might think. Um, this, this sort of group of pictures on the screen is just an example of some of the extraordinary riches um, at Claydon, which is a private archive belonging to the Verney family who live at Claydon, which is now a National Trust house. Um, so in the background you see a sketch of Florence Nightingale with two men. They were Sir John McNeil and Dr John Sutherland, who was Florence Nightingale's closest associate during her um, sanitarian work. In the foreground, the, the profile picture of Florence Nightingale with flowers in her hair which was um, a watercolour done by Parthenope after they travelled around Europe in, from 1837 to 39. I think shows the influence of, of, of the um, Italianate culture they'd come across. It looks very much like a sort of Piero. Of, uh, um. This is a picture I found which shows Florence Nightingale as a baby with her Italian wet nurse. She was a very plump baby in Italy. When she, as soon as she got back to England, her health deteriorated. This is another of these sort of slightly 
obsessive pictures that Parthenope produce, produced of her sister. And here's Athena the owl again. And this, I thought, was an extraordinary picture because it's very obviously Florence Nightingale. Um, it was um, drawn in the 1830s when she was 11 or 12. Um, and it's actually, the artist is George Catamol, who, of course, went on to be one of Dickens' uh, illustrators. I think it's a wonderful picture. Um, and this is, of course, a, one of those pictures that Queen Victoria ordered to be taken, a much more familiar image of Florence Nightingale. For an age such as ours, obsessed with sex and celebrity, Florence Nightingale, who had no time for either, sometimes appears an even greater puzzle than she did to writers like Cook and Woodham Smith. The sheer scale of her ambition to change the world and the inordinate mass of documentary evidence that testifies to that ambition will always make her difficult to fathom. But placing her in the context of her wider family circle, especially the women on her mother's side of the family, the Smiths, at least makes her seem a little less odd. In the light of Florence Nightingale's great speculative work, Suggestions for Thought, which expresses her radical spiritual views and makes its own important contribution to the central debate of the mid-Victorian era, the attempt to unite science and religion, it should not perhaps surprise us to find that Florence's maternal grandmother, Frances Smith, née Cope, was famous in her prime for her talents of religious disputation. The lives of two maternal aunts, Patty and Julia, both of whom left unpublished memoirs behind them, must have left their mark on their niece Florence. In Julia, we see the same indefatigable energy and a disposition to help the underdog. Like her father, William Smith, MP, before her, Julia was an ardent abolitionist and an active supporter of the Anti-Corn League. Aunt Patty is even more interesting to someone writing Florence Nightingale's biography. She provides links with interesting women contemporaries like the mathematician Mary Somerville. And Florence's first escape, of course, from the genteel pursuits expected of Victorian ladies was to be allowed to study mathematics. And even more significantly, Aunt Patty provides a link with Elizabeth Fry. Fry's contribution as a nursing reformer through the foundation of her institution of nursing sisters in 1840, the first sustained nursing service to the poor, has often been overshadowed by her work for penal reform. Aunt Patty, it is clear, was a disciple of Mrs Fry's and deeply interested in the problems attached to extending Fry's principles of care to the internal management of hospitals and infirmaries. In 1868, the publication of a biography of an old friend, Baron Bunsen, by his wife, prompted this observation from Florence Nightingale. All these things being published only tend to lower the public's general opinion of the person treated of. The publishing of private letters not only is a treachery and a theft, but a treachery and a theft which recoils upon the head of the very memory so sacred which they are meant to exalt. For Nightingale herself, however, the very reverse has been shown to be true. She recoiled from Babylisty for her work, partly out of religious conviction and partly because she believed, probably correctly, that as a woman she could achieve more as an influence behind the scenes than she could in the public spotlight. Ultimately, this has led to distortion and wilder surmise about her life and work being presented under the guise of truth by even serious biographers and historians. We think of her primarily as a nurse, which of course she wasn't. But the idea of her as some ministering angel flitting between hospital beds is a residue of Victorian sentiment and the enduring appeal of the lady with the lamp. The Victorians also portrayed her as the heroic founder of nursing as a profession and as a hospital reformer. Even, though, even this, though, distorts both the history of the development of the nursing profession and the part Nightingale played in it. I'm not sure that calling Florence Nightingale the founder of modern nursing is very useful. Nursing reform would have happened without her, and indeed the foundations of some of the most important innovations in reform nursing were laid in the decade before the Crimean War, the 1840s, by the new Protestant sisterhoods. Perhaps it's more accurate to describe Florence Nightingale as the founder of professional nursing, for although she might have had problems with the word profession, preferring the term calling, she was undoubtedly the first individual who sought to make nursing a paid profession for women. Nursing was to be an independent healthcare profession with a specific function of patient care, different from medicine, and requiring its own distinctive training. 
The work should be paid, not voluntary, and the qualifications, trained experience, not religious commitment. While ceasing to believe that Florence Nightingale transformed nursing with a shaft of light from her famous lamp, we are able, in this centenary year, to take a broader view of her achievements. As a pioneer in formulating a coherent policy of public health in Britain and our India, as an advisor in hospital design, an originator of the use of statistics in health and social policy, as a radical theologian, a great travel writer, as the author of a memorable essay about what it was like to be an upper-middle-class Victorian woman based on the sense of frustration she undoubtedly experienced as a brilliant young woman whose ambition was thwarted by her family, and much, much more. There are enormous problems attached to writing Nightingale's life, which is probably why no one has been foolhardy enough to attempt a full-scale biography for over half, century, half a century. The overwhelming extent of the primary material presents one obvious problem, both in terms of dealing with the obvious contradictions in Nightingale's thought on public health issues over a long lifespan, and also in a fundamental truth, which impressed me itself on me more and more as I went on, that the more evidence you have, the more you become aware of the evidence that's missing. Parallels between the lady with the lamp and the iron lady. Um, I'd like to finish with uh, this cartoon from The Economist. Um, I was surprised to find myself indebted to Britain's first woman, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, for helping me to understand the political advantages and vicissitudes experienced by a woman operating in a male-dominated world. Florence Nightingale would have abhorred much about Thatcher's politics. For a start, she believed without irreverence that God was a liberal, but she would undoubtedly have recognised elements of Thatcher's style as akin to her own. Writing in 1990, the historian David Canadine was the first to draw attention to the parallels between the lady with the lamp and the Iron Lady. Long before Thatcher, Nightingale both denied and exploited her femininity to gain power in a man's world. Long before Thatcher, Nightingale was possessed of superabundant energy and was in a righteous rage to get things done. Long before Thatcher, Nightingale hated red tape, loathed bureaucrats, and was determined to sweep away incompetence and inefficiency wherever she found it. In 1989, on a visit to Turkey, Margaret Thatcher laid a wreath in the British Crimean War Cemetery at Scutari. Afterwards, she spoke to reporters about one of the great figures of history who had had an idea, who knew what she wanted to do and wasn't going to be put off by anyone. Purportedly, Thatcher was referring to Florence Nightingale, but it's tempting to believe that she was really talking about herself. Thanks very much.